Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. sure how many people have heard this story, but I alluded to it earlier. When I talked about Parley P. Pratt in Toronto, Canada, converting Isabella Walton and the Taylors and the Fieldings and all of that, Joseph Fielding and his sisters were originally from England in the Preston area. And Joseph Fielding went to Kirtland along with his sisters, and they made known to the prophet Joseph that if missionaries were going to England, they, or at least Joseph, would like to go. So when the Lord and Joseph called Heber C. Kimball on a mission in July of 1837, Joseph Fielding was among those companions that was chosen to go with him. Well, when they arrived, as I said earlier, they went to Preston and set up mission headquarters in Preston, England. And again, there's a lot there that I've talked about already. But suffice it to say, Heber felt impressed to go visit two small villages just outside of Preston, England. I believe they're to the north. You British saints set me straight. I don't know the countryside perfectly, but I believe they're to the north of Preston. They were called Chatburn and Downham. And as he did this, he said, several brethren endeavored to dissuade me from going informing me that there could be no prospect of success whatsoever as they, meaning the people of Chatburn and Downham, had resisted all efforts for the last 30 years. I was informed, Heber said, they were wicked places. Love this story. Well, if you know anything about Heber C. Kimball, he is one of those, like Joseph Smith once described, if he dies by drowning, look for the body upstream. Heber went anyway, telling them as he went, it was not my business to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. If they're really that bad, then I'm going to Chatburn and Downham. Well, Heber describes what happened when they got to Chatburn. He said, and I've got to quote much of this because it's so well said. He said, I was cordially received by the inhabitants who turned out in great numbers to hear me preach. They placed a barrel in the center of a large barn for me to preach on. Evidently, Heber then got up on the barrel and, quote, preached to them the first principles of the gospel and a little on the subject of the resurrection. He said, when I concluded, I felt someone pulling at my coat, exclaiming, Maester, Maester. Please, sir, will you baptize me? And me, and me, exclaimed more than a dozen voices. I wish my mission had been something like this. Accordingly, Heber said, I went down into the water and baptized 25 people. I was engaged with them until after midnight, he said. The next morning, he went to Downham and baptized 25 to 30 people in the course of one day in Downham. 
The next evening, he said, I went back to Chatburn. The congregation was so numerous, he said, I had to preach in the open air and stand on a stone wall. And afterwards, he said, baptized several. We were absent from Preston, he said, for five days. Brother Fielding and I baptized and confirmed about 110 persons. So much for a very wicked place. Elder Fielding spoke of the experiences in Chatburn and Downing thus. There is a wonderful work in Downham and Chatburn, two small villages. It appears as though the whole of the inhabitants were turning out, turning to the Lord from 10 to 90 years old. It is truly affecting to see them. On a subsequent visit to the area, Elder Kimball recalled, quote, I cannot refrain from relating an occurrence which took place while Brother Fielding and myself were passing through the village of Chatburn on our way to Downham. Having been observed approaching the village, news ran from house to house, and immediately the noise of their looms was hushed, and the people flocked to their doors to welcome us and see us pass. More than 40 young people of the place ran to meet us, some took hold of us and then of each other's hands, several having hold of hands, and went before us singing the songs of Zion while their parents gazed upon the scene with delight and poured their blessings upon our head and praised God for sending us. He said, The children continued with us down the road all the way to Downham, a mile away. Such a scene of gratitude I have never witnessed before. And this, he said, from those whose hearts were deemed too hard to be penetrated by the gospel. The brethren were thronged sufficiently in Chatburn and Downham that they could scarcely pass along the street. He says, on the morning when I left Chatburn, many were in tears thinking they should never see my face again. When I left them, my feelings were such as I cannot describe. As I walked down the street, I was followed by numbers. The doors were crowded by the inmates of the houses to bid me farewell. This is when Hebrews going home to America. Who only could give vent to their grief in sobs and broken accents. While contemplating this scene, I was constrained to take off my hat for I felt that I was on holy ground. The Spirit of the Lord rested down upon me, and I was constrained to bless that whole region of country. We could hardly separate. My heart was like unto theirs, and I thought my head was a fountain of tears. I wept for several miles after I bid them adieu. He said three times I had to leave the road and go wash my face in a stream of water to bathe my eyes. The Lord had a people waiting for Heber in Chatburn and Downham. When Heber returned home and reported his mission to the prophet Joseph Smith, he told Joseph about what had happened there. And Joseph said, Did you not understand it? That is a place where some of the old prophets traveled and dedicated that land, and their blessing 
fell upon you. Is it possible that those people were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel? And is it possible that the apostles of Jesus's day visited there and blessed that land? I don't know. Something happened. But the Lord was with Peter. In some of the comments that you have written to me, my heart has reached out to some of you because you're shut in, you're old. I'm sorry. I don't know how else to say it. I'm not much of a diplomat. You're elderly and infirm. Some are blind. Some can't hear very well. I'm sorry. But you can't go anywhere, and my heart goes out to you. I wish there were something we could do. I wish that we could somehow bring comfort and cheer and joy into every one of your homes. For all those of you who are feeling put upon, not just by pandemics and quarantines and so forth, but by the advances of age or ill health, I want you to remember this story. John and Elsa Johnson had a good-sized family living in Hiram, Ohio. One of their sons, I believe it was Luke, maybe it was Lyman, I'm not sure, had gone to Kirtland and heard Joseph Smith teach and was converted. He obtained a copy of the Book of Mormon and took it home and gave it to his parents. His parents, John and Elsa, took the Book of Mormon and then invited their minister, Ezra Booth, a Methodist minister, to come over, and together they all sat up through the better part of the night, reading the Book of Mormon and learning more about this new religion and this new prophet. Well, of course, they decided that they wanted to go and meet the prophet Joseph Smith. So they journeyed from Hiram to Kirtland. Now they found Joseph living in the home of Newell K. Whitney. And as they entered the home, now I don't, there's several different accounts of this, and I put them all together into what I'm about to tell you, but it appears that there was a small gathering of people in the Newell K. Whitney home. John and Elsa Johnson and Ezra Booth and the prophet Joseph and evidently several others were there in the room. And presently the conversation turned to miracles. And someone asked the question, is there the power of God still on the earth? And I don't know the exact words because they're not recorded, but something to the effect, is the power to work miracles still here? And then the conversation, as it does, moved on. And I quote from Amos S. Hayden. Now, he's not and never was a Latter-day Saint, he said, quote, A few moments later, when the conversation had turned in another direction, Smith, meaning the prophet Joseph, Smith arose and walking across the room and taking Mrs. Johnson by the hand, said in the most solemn and impressive manner, Woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee, to be whole. End quote. And then he said, Joseph just didn't say a word, walked out of the room. Everyone in the room stood 
in stunned silence at the audacity of Joseph to command such a thing and by the power and the calmness and authority of his voice as he said it. And then, as you can imagine, every eye turned on Elsa Johnson. To that point, Elsa had been unable to lift her arm to her head. Rheumatoid arthritis, I don't know what it was, but she had been unable for years to lift that arm or to use it. And as they watched, she raised her arm to her head for the first time. And the next day, did her laundry and hung it out to dry without any pain. God is with us. We are not alone. We are not alone. Now, this is a story that bridges the modern and reaches back into the past. When my wife and I first moved into our ward here in Syracuse, Utah, I remember it was like the first Sunday we were in church, and I, and some of you have heard me tell the story because it's so close to my heart, and Fern is gone now. But as I sat in the Relief Society room waiting for Sunday school, I happened to glance over my shoulder, and there was a little old lady, and I mean those words deliberately, a little old lady sitting right behind me, and she was staring at me intensely. Now, I'm used to being stared at for at least a couple of different reasons. Some people know who I am, but some people are shocked when they see what I look like. But she was staring at me in a way that gave me to understand she knew who I was. I just quickly turned around and ignored her. I didn't really want to get into it right there. So after church was over, I was standing at the back door of the chapel, and here come Fern, toddling down the hallway, on the arm of her daughter. And I mean toddling. She was very old and bent over, hunched back, and kind of looking at me like this. And as she walked down the hall, she was staring at me again with that intensity. And the fire coming from her eyes was so bright and so hot, I could have warmed my hands by them. And she walked right up to me. And she said, without any preamble, I am the great, great, granddaughter, I forgot how many greats she said, great, great granddaughter of Elizabeth Brooke Panting Cranny. And I stood there like, am I supposed to know who that is? I went home and I quickly looked up who she was. This was the story that she told me, that Fern told me, and I researched later. Elizabeth Crook was born the second of 11 children in England in 1827. She was baptized a Latter-day Saint by Wilford Woodruff in 1840, and then in 1848 she married Frederick Panting and they began to have a family. Family life was not pleasant for Elizabeth. Over time she lost several of her children, all but two of them had died. Her husband became a cruel drunk wanted nothing to do with the Latter-day Saints, and wanted her to have nothing to do with it. In fact, when she insisted on going to church, he hid her shoes. She borrowed shoes and went anyway, and finally, when he could not stop her from her association with the Latter-day Saints, he threatened to kill her. 
Well, to make a long story short, that's when she left and set out for Zion. She boarded the train to go to Liverpool, and her husband got on the train. You've seen this in, in the movie. Her husband got on the train and walked right past her, didn't recognize her. She arrived in the United States, made her way to Iowa City, joined up with the handcart companies, and suffered along with everyone else that was a part of the Willie Company. On snows came and on, on the 19th of October, 1856. But if you remember this story, and again, I think it was in the movie, that they made camp one night and Elizabeth went out searching for buffalo chips to build a fire. And she went out and she met a man who asked about the condition of the camp and she said, they're all starving and freezing. And the man said, maybe I can help. And he led her over a hill. And on the other side of the hill, there was a cave. And he led her into the cave and there were strips of buffalo meat hanging from the walls of the cave. He loaded up her skirts and her apron and sent her back. He crested the hill with her to say, now see where your camp is and pointed it out. And she looked and she saw the camp. And when she turned back, the man was gone. Elizabeth took the meat and went into camp, distributed it, and then they went back out and tried to find a cave. There was no man and there was no cave. Elizabeth reached Zion, remarried a man named Cranny, kept the faith, and raised a large posterity, among whom was my dear departed friend, Fern. The fire in her eyes was inspired by the example of her great-great-grandmother. The Lord was with Elizabeth. The Lord was with Fern. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we are never alone. He sees us. He knows us. He loves us. This week, I've had a story, if you don't mind something from the modern, that keeps coming to my mind. I don't know why this story keeps weighing on me, but I won't argue. I'll just share it with you, even though it's a modern story. I guess modern. It was 50-some years ago when I was just a little boy. My dad and I went deer hunting one time. At that time, we lived in Ledor, and we were journeying up the canyon to the east of Ledor, up through towards Bannock Pass. And we were in our car rather than the pickup. I don't know why. And I was sitting in the back seat. And as we started up the switchbacks going over Bannock Pass into Montana, there was a little bit of snow on the road, just enough to make the road really slippery. And as my dad went into a banked turn like that, the back end of the car swung down into the curve and started sliding backward off the mountain. I was in the back seat and I looked behind me and all I could see was air. And in my little boy state of mind, it was panic. I thought, we're going to die. We're going to roll off this mountain and I'm going to get squashed like a bug. And I hollered at my dad. He didn't even move. He didn't hit the brake. He didn't spin the wheel. He just kept pressure on the gas pedal. And the car just kept digging and digging 
and then it would catch and straighten out. And then it would slide back and start sliding backward again. My dad never panicked. He just kept the tires digging and digging. And every time they would dig down through the thin layer of snow, catch traction, straighten out, and go on. And we must have done that two or three times in that corner. And finally, my dad beat the corner and made it up the mountain. All because he refused to panic and give up and slide backwards and kill us all. He kept moving forward. And so it should be with you and me. Keep trying. Don't give up. God is with you. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.